Welcome to the Bedford Alliance Church Foundations Podcast. I'm Luke Cugino, your discipleship pastor and host. This weekly podcast is designed to accompany your discipleship group and help you build a strong foundation in the Christian faith. We want to equip you so you can be unleashed to obey Jesus' command to make disciples. We want to make Jesus' final words our first work. Hello and welcome back to the Foundations Podcast. And we have been journeying through the storyline of the Bible. So far we've covered the Old Testament. And then last week we talked about the 400 years of silence. Remember after the close of the Old Testament period, there are 400 plus years where there's essentially no inspired word from God. No more prophets, no more Old Testament books being written. Now, God is still in control. He's still working during this time. He's still working behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes. But there's no inspired word from God. And then Jesus comes on the scene and we come to our topic for this week, which is the Gospels. Now, to be clear here, when we use the term gospel, first of all, the term gospel just means good news. Okay, good news. And we can use this term in a couple different ways. First, we use it to simply describe the good news about Jesus, the good news about salvation through Jesus, the gospel message. But we also use the term gospel to label or describe the books in the Bible that talk about Jesus's life and ministry and death and resurrection. Okay, there are four of these books or gospels in the New Testament. They are the first four books of the New Testament. They are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those are the books we want to look at this week. What we're going to do first is kind of cover them collectively and ask as a whole, what do they contribute to the story of scripture? And then with the time we have left, we'll briefly look at what makes each gospel unique and why we have four gospels in the first place. But first, I want to recap. I want us to think a little bit about what Israel was going through at the time of Jesus, when Jesus came onto the scene, I want to set some context here. Remember, Israel had been under foreign rule for centuries. We talked about how Israel was enslaved by the Egyptians, and then they faced oppression from the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then finally the Romans. And the Romans are in control when Jesus comes on the scene. And then on top of that, so they have oppression for centuries by other nations. On top of that, there's been 400 plus years of no inspired word from God. No more prophets, no more books of scripture being written. And then to make matters worse, there's no evidence of God's presence in the temple. God's presence has left the temple. And in many ways, the religion and beliefs of God's people are changing during this time. We see the Pharisees and the Sadducees and these different religious groups coming to to prominence. And in many cases, they're adding things to the law and adding their own interpretations. And then the religious leaders, the high priests are are becoming corrupt. And the people running the temple are, are making compromises with Roman rulers to protect their own power. And then you've got zealots who are calling for violent political rebellion. So it seems like at this point, all hope is lost. This is a mess, okay, for God's people, for the Israelites. This is a mess. And then Jesus comes onto the scene, and this is where it gets good. 
Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit. Understand Jesus is fully God. He's fully man. And he doesn't inherit a sinful nature from man. All of us, when we're born, we all have a sin nature. Okay, We're enslaved to sin from birth. But Jesus, because he's conceived by the Holy Spirit, he is free from sin. He is sinless. He's fully God. He's fully man. And his life, as we see in the Gospels, it parallels Israel's history in a lot of different ways. So, for example, we see both Israel and Jesus escape from murderous threats. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, remember, before Israel's exodus from Egypt, Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of Egypt, ordered all Israelite boys to be killed at birth. So anytime an Israelite boy was born, Pharaoh ordered that they be killed. But Moses, who became the deliverer of Israel, was able to escape. Then if we fast forward to Jesus' day, King Herod, who was in control over this region at this time, he ordered all boys two years old and younger to be killed in and around Bethlehem. This was Herod's attempt to kill Jesus, this future king that he heard about and who he thought might be a potential rival to his throne. But Jesus and his family escape. So we see this this parallel between Jesus' life and Israel's history. We see a lot of other parallels as well. So for example, just as Israel fled to Egypt to escape a deadly famine, Jesus and his family flee to Egypt to escape Herod's murderous threats. We also see that Israel crossed the Jordan River to enter the promised land, the land promised to Abraham that was part of the Exodus. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River before he begins his ministry before he begins, in a sense, a new exodus. Israel spends 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan and fasting in the wilderness. Israel had 12 tribes. Jesus had 12 apostles or disciples who represent, in a sense, a new and restored Israel. So in all of these events, Jesus' life parallels Israel's history, but this time, there is a far different outcome. Whereas Israel repeatedly failed to keep the covenant, they repeatedly failed to keep God's standard, Jesus lives a sinless life and fulfills the law that Israel repeatedly failed to keep. And he performs many miracles and healings and he casts out demons Now, why does he do these things? Well, these acts, these miracles, do a a few different things. First, they demonstrate the truth of his message. They authenticate his message. They show that he is who he says he is. They also show that God's rule and reign and presence has come back to his people. Remember, God's presence left the temple in the Old Testament. Now his presence has come back in the person of Jesus. The kingdom of God has come. The rule and the reign of God has come back to his people. Even though it hasn't come fully yet, it has come. And these miracles also, along with that, foreshadow the new creation. They foreshadow when God's kingdom will come fully and all things will be made right. And there will be no more diseases or sicknesses or death. God's kingdom will come in full and we will be his people. He will be our God. 
But there's a problem here. Okay, we come to a conflict in the story. The problem is that Jesus doesn't meet the expectations that most Jewish people have of the Messiah. They expect a political ruler who will set Israel free from foreign rule and from oppression and restore Israel to a powerful earthly kingdom, kind of like what they had under David or or Solomon. But instead, Jesus spends most of his time with a small group of men, and he claims to be God. So the, the Jewish religious leaders, they see Jesus as a false teacher who threatens not only their beliefs, but their traditions and their authority as well. So this growing conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders eventually leads to Jesus being sentenced to death by the Roman governor of this area, who is Pontius Pilate. And Jesus is executed by the Romans through crucifixion, through death on a cross. He died a criminal's death. And Jesus' followers are left shocked, And confused. The one who they thought would bring salvation and restoration is killed. But this was all part of God's plan. Understand that on the cross, Jesus takes the sin and the brokenness of the entire world on himself. Now remember, he's fully God, which means that he is the perfect, sinless sacrifice, and he can bear the sins of the entire world. No man can do that. Only God can do that. But he's also fully man, which means he can take our place. He can be our substitute. He fulfills the righteous standard that Israel and really all people failed to keep. He pays the price for our sins. He takes the wrath of God on himself. So his righteousness, his perfection can be transferred to us. And then after he dies, he rises from the dead on the third day. This shows his his victory over sin and over death and over all of evil. The forces of evil had no hold on him. And after he rises from the dead, he appears to many of his followers. And before he ascends into heaven, he leaves his followers with a command. He says, go and make disciples. Basically meaning go and make other followers of Jesus. Because it's now possible for everyone, not just the Israelites, But now everyone can have a relationship with God. Everyone who puts their faith in Jesus is forgiven of their sins and their relationship with God is restored. Now, let's step back for for just a minute here. Let's think about the connection to the rest of the story. Okay, let's, let's think back to the Old Testament. How does this part of the story relate to what we've talked about so far in the previous weeks? Well, first understand Jesus is the Messiah predicted by the Old Testament. He is the coming king who will bring restoration and salvation. The problem is the Jews expected the Messiah to set them free from political and and national oppression. They expected more of a political leader. But Jesus came to do something much greater. He came to set people's hearts free from sin and to establish an eternal kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. And also understand that by purchasing the salvation of the world, of all nations, of all people— Jesus brings a blessing to all all nations. He fulfills the promise made to Abraham. Remember, God promised Abraham that he would bring a blessing to all nations through his offspring. Jesus fulfills that. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. We see that in Matthew 1 verse 1. It says Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And he's also the fulfillment of God's promise to David. Remember, God promised David that he would have a descendant who would sit on the throne of his kingdom forever. Jesus fulfills that. He is the eternal king, the son of David, who will sit on his throne for all eternity. And then understand Jesus in the Gospels, he initiates a new covenant, what he calls a new covenant, to replace what we call the old covenant, which is the covenant God made with Israel and Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, the Old Covenant, which is where we get the term Old Testament from, a testament is another word that we use for covenant. The Old Covenant showed God's righteous standards, but Israel was never capable of meeting it. There was no heart change. The Old Covenant never changed their hearts. It just revealed more of the problem. But through the New Covenant, since Jesus met God's standard for us, everybody who trusts in him is saved. This is the good news that the Gospels give us. This is the Gospel message. Now, that's the overall picture that the Gospels give us collectively together. But why are there four different Gospels? You ever wonder that? Well, understand that all of the authors, all four authors, are writing from a slightly different perspective. One way to think of it is we have four authors writing to four different audiences with four slightly different purposes in mind. Okay, they, they all cover the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but they all do so from a slightly different angle to give us a more complete picture of Jesus. So as we look at the individual Gospels, for example, the book of Matthew, Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. He was one of the 12, and he was a tax collector when Jesus called him. He wrote primarily to a Jewish audience, okay? He was Jewish himself, so he's writing primarily to a a Jewish audience. And because of that, he traces Jesus' genealogy to David and to Abraham, and he often points out how Jesus fulfilled many Old Testament promises and prophecies, okay? Because remember, he's writing to the Jewish people. He's writing to people who are familiar with the Old Testament, So he sought to persuade his Jewish audience that Jesus was the predicted Messiah. Because remember, a lot of Jews rejected Jesus. Then we come to the book of Mark. Now, Mark was not one of Jesus' 12 disciples, but he was a close associate of Peter, who was one of the 12. And Mark, we believe, was writing primarily to a Roman audience, okay, so a non-Jewish audience. So he focuses more on the actions of Jesus. He presents Jesus as a suffering servant. And he sought to teach people that those who follow Jesus, people who follow Jesus, who is our suffering Savior, have to be willing to suffer as well. If we're going to follow a suffering Savior, we have to be willing to give everything, even our lives, to follow him. Then we have the book of Luke. Now, Luke was also not one of the 12, but he was a close associate of Paul, the Apostle Paul. And Luke was probably a Gentile himself, and he's writing to a a Gentile audience. So once again, a non-Jewish audience. His book is actually addressed to a Roman official named Theophilus. And so Luke focuses on Jesus as a savior of all people, not just the Israelites, but of all people, regardless of race and nationality or social class or profession or gender or even those 
despised by society, those despised and rejected by society. Jesus is the Savior of all people. And Luke tells us that he recorded his gospel through painstaking research. We see that in Luke chapter 1. So we see a lot of detail in his gospel and a commitment to to chronological order as he recounts Jesus' life. And one interesting thing to note is some scholars think that Luke may have actually had access to Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the early church. And he may have actually been able to interview her. And that might be why Luke has the most detailed birth narrative. So just an interesting note. Then the Gospel of John. John writes his Gospel in a sense for the entire world. It's the most general audience. And his Gospel in a sense is also the most theological. He focuses on the divinity of Jesus, Jesus being fully God, being divine. And he tells us that he wrote so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So again, all four Gospels cover the life and the death and resurrection and the teachings of Jesus, but they all do so from a slightly different angle. And they all combine to give us one grand portrait of our glorious Savior. Now, as we wrap up here, I want us to, to think about something. Think about the fact that God himself took on flesh. Don't take that for granted. God took on flesh and became one of us. He pursued us. He didn't just send his prophet or even just his word. He took on flesh and walked among us. He pursued us. So let's go and let's do the same for other people. This gospel is too good to keep to ourselves. Jesus is too good to keep to ourselves. He has left us with a command to go and make disciples to seek And to save the lost, let's do that. Let's live for what counts, and let's make Jesus' final words our first work. (laughs) 